Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a conversation with Mark Myers, who's been leading the commercial real estate business for Wells Fargo over the past decade. Mark has been with Wells his whole career since 1980, 39 years, and is retiring actually in a few weeks on Valentine's Day. Mark is retiring from Wells Fargo as, if I can use the word, the Dean of Large Bank Real Estate Lending nationally. And his perspective on a long career at one institution, his perspective on the vast changes in the real estate capital markets over this 40-year period, and his perspective on the current real estate capital markets and view on what he sees as a stable infrastructure going forward for the business is all great fodder for leading voices. This conversation is kind of a bookend to our recent interview with David Brickman, the CEO of Freddie Mac. Mark's our first guest from a major bank, but both Mark and David Brickman spoke directly to the real estate capital markets, particularly the debt side of the business. Several things to listen for from my perspective in this conversation. First, how to navigate, thrive, and have great satisfaction from a long career at one institution. Second, we're talking with someone very senior in the industry who's so used to the heavy engagement and relationships that the business life brings, but is now looking forward to retirement. How do you navigate success and happiness and some continued engagement and balance in retirement? Third, as we've heard from many others, Mark provides another view, another retelling, this time the capital markets retelling on the evolution of the ever-increasingly institutional real estate business. This span of Mark's story is the same span that I've observed through my career, which is one of the reasons that I love to have these stories told on Leading Voices. Lots of fodder in a very fun, very warm conversation with Mark, which I hope you enjoy. I appreciate your listening in on Leading Voices. You all know that this is my avocation, not my vocation. We truly produce Leading Voices as a resource for the industry, both for current and future leaders to gain insights into the breadth of that which we do in the real estate industry and the pathways that accomplished folks have taken to build their businesses and careers. If you find the series to be valuable, please share the podcast with colleagues and friends, and please also rate us on iTunes. Your rating helps others find us. Enjoy today's conversation with Mark. I sure did. So, Mark Myers, thank you for being here on Leading Voices. You are the first banker on our podcast. I interviewed David Brickman from Freddie Mac a couple weeks ago, which was the first debt person generally, but he's kind of more precise in the GSC world. So we're going to get to talk a lot about banking, a lot about you, and what's the place of debt and banking relationships in the real estate ecosystem, which is really, really interesting. I look forward to the conversation, Matt. I must tell you, I'm deeply, deeply honored to be here. I'm deeply honored to think that you would view me as a leading voice in the industry. Also must tell you that I feel a cool factor over me for two reasons. One, I'm doing a podcast, there you go. which sounds very cool. And I'm in a co-working space here in Industrious, which you're a tenant of, and walking the floor today also made me feel very young and very cool. So thank you. Thank you for having me today. You're welcome. Sometimes I feel very old and semi-cool being <laughs> here at Industrious, but it's a wonderful thing. It gives me energy every day, which is what I enjoy so much. So it's great. So as we start the conversation, kind of give me the elevator speech about the sure. role of the large banks, institutional mm -hmm. banks, in the real estate ecosystem. What sure. does it mean and what's your role mean? And then we'll get into detail. Yeah, sure. So let me just, if I could, take a minute to just frame my role at Wells Fargo and, and our place mm -hmm. in the real estate debt ecosystem. 
I've had the pleasure for the last eight years to lead our commercial real estate finance platform, which we view as an industry-leading platform. That's a combination of providing uh, banking services financing and loan servicing to the commercial real estate industry, both in the U.S., in the U.K., and in Canada. Our customers are both public and private. We're actively in the balance sheet lending business today, about $150 billion of balance sheet commitments to the real estate industry. We are active in the CMBS space. We are a large mortgage servicer, the largest in the country, largely a master servicer. We service about $500 billion worth of loans, largely for others. We're also very proudly the largest affordable lender in the U.S. with a combination of debt and equity through the low-income housing tax credit business. Uh, Last year, we did about $5.5 billion worth of affordable housing financing, which allowed us to build about 31,000 affordable units for homeless, families, seniors, Mm. uh, veterans, and the like. So, So that's the Wells platform, very integrated, very comprehensive. When you step back and you look at the broader debt platforms today, everybody swims in everybody's swim lane. So when I first got into the business, everybody had a very defined lane. So the banks generally were in the construction lending space. Mm -hmm. The life companies were primarily in the permanent lending space. The GSEs obviously had their role. And in the early 80s, when I came into the business, the SNLs were very active. Mm-hmm. No longer, obviously. And we can talk about that as we take we a trip down memory lane. Uh-huh. Today, you have the commercial banks, both large banks and regional banks. You have insurance companies. You now have the advent of debt funds mm-hmm. and mortgage REITs, of course, the GSEs, and then the CMBS market, which we can talk about. Very robust, very liquid today. I would tell you one of the defining moments, Matt, of this recovery coming out of the financial crisis is how disciplined the debt lenders have actually been. Mm -hmm. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. And you've seen times with discipline was- Oh, lose their way. Yeah. Lose their way. And you've had a how many year career at Wells Fargo? So 39 years at Wells Fargo, my first and only job, first and only real job, I should say, I've had other quote jobs. Mm-hmm. But 39 years at Wells Fargo, I've announced my retirement effective mm-hmm. Valentine's Day, February so, 14th, 2020. It'll be either right before or right after we release this. So congratulations. Thank I want to keep saying Mazel Tov, but yeah. good to you. Uh, Mazel Tov works. Thank you. And so you're going to be the first and only person 39 years at one company, the first and only person in the debt business, first and only person who's about to retire. So we're kind of looking at a career and looking at the life through that. And we're going to kind of hear the history of debt as seen through the life and career that you've had and led. And before we kind of talk about you and then your pathway through this, because it's going to be the same as the history of the business, any other headlines about what you found when you started was the banks were construction lenders and they were small. Then you wound up being at one of the survivors in Gigundo Banks and the Gigundo Bank that then had all of those components, CMBS, which didn't exist before, but then GSE, tax credit. And the last comment is we're not talking about single family. This is only commercial real estate. Every number you've used so far. That's correct. Commercial real estate with the exception, Matt, of we do finance the home builder industry, uh, both public and private. 
<laughs> and we do that out of our commercial real estate space. But you're right. The numbers I talk about, the business I talk about is largely commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. You're right. The industry from the day I got in it to today has grown immensely, the commercial banking industry. When I started Wells Fargo in 1980, mm-hmm. the company, Legacy Wells Fargo, was a California-centric bank. It earned, in 1980 or 81, it earned $123 million dollars and it had an asset base of $22 billion. Today, that same company obviously Mm -hmm. has grown quite a bit, has went through a number of mergers. Today, that company will earn roughly $22 billion a year on an asset base of $2 trillion. So I've been the lucky good fortune to have been a part of that growth and to do it at one company albeit that the industry has gone through a significant level of consolidation. So I feel lucky. I also feel lucky as I look back on my career, when I got into the business, interest rates, which are a key driver to our commercial real estate industry, interest rates were in the 17, 18, 19 percent range. So I've had the good fortune over that 30, 35 year period to have seen interest rates drop 15 percent. I've also seen the advent of the internet and what that's done to both our industry and the economic vibrancy. I've seen globalization and what that does from a positive standpoint in terms of growth of particularly U.S. companies. So so I really feel lucky that over this almost 40-year period, there have been a number of wins that have gone in my favor personally. That doesn't mean that over that period of time, we haven't had our bumps in the road. And I know we'll talk about some of those. We most certainly will. So let's dive into you. And so you grew up here. I did. Grew up. We're sitting right now at 345 California Street. I grew up off of California Street on 30th Avenue. So if you were to walk out your door here and walk a couple miles, you'd ultimately end up in my neighborhood, otherwise known as the Richmond District or the Avenues. My 93-year-old mother still lives in the house I grew up in. Oh, my God. So San Francisco... Do you grow up during the flower power days? Absolutely, 1960s. So Summer of Love. You were here. In uh, Summer of Love, I was a, a kid. Wonderful music scene. So uh-huh. if you go you know, back in time in the 60s and 70s, you had Sly and the Family Stone here, Grateful Dead, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, Carlos Santana, a little later in life, Tower of Power, Boss Gags, Huey Lewis. Right you know, on and on. So I was fortunate enough in the 60s and 70s to be part of that music scene, at least from a listener perspective. You Then you had the turbulent time of the mm-hmm. 60s here in San Francisco. So you had the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement right. here. You had the freedom of speech and the student issues over at UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. civil rights movement, the Black Panther Party here in Oakland. So it was a very, very interesting time I was a public school kid, so I had the benefit of going to school with a rich, diverse, both ethnic, socioeconomic, and I think really helped inform me as an adult. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. There's a book called Season of the Witch. Have you read that book? I haven't. It's a really no. interesting book about yeah. the kind of when San Francisco, one of those good things went bad, right, right after the Summer of Love, when San Francisco got messy. And so you, from that crucible, you became a banker. I became a banker. Who would have ever thought? <laughs> I don't want to think about that. And then also this part comes into our conversation just a yes. little bit because we have this in common. But you grew up in the Jewish community. And when we first got right. to know each other well, you were the board chair of the Jewish Home of San Francisco. Right. 
And the thing I noticed when I was on the board there was that you had a father and maybe even a grandfather who'd been on the board of that. It was my father, not my grandfather, but my father was also the board chair. My father, very, very active in the Jewish communal nonprofit Uh world, really set the foundation for myself. And by the way, I hope in my retirement years, one of the things that I've identified in terms of a bucket of activity will be to get back into the nonprofit world and give back. And both in the Jewish communal, and I'd like to do something in the affordable housing right. space as well. We'll talk about that. That's great. A, not on the podcast, yeah, but we'll great. go there. But it's interesting because having a parent that involved in the community and growing up in the community is different than me because I grew up in Philly, and so I've been all over the country. But you're really rooted here. I think it's the roots that really help define. And then you had a 39 career at one institution. Right. You're a man with some roots. I am a man with roots. <laughs> there you uh, go. And where was college? So college was across the Bay at Berkeley. And I studied actually urban economics at Berkeley, and I got really, really interested in real estate Uh through my educational pursuits. So that was sort of an early foundation in terms of the analytics, which we can talk about, Uh to carry that maybe one step further, because I think I know where you're headed. Uh I did some summer work with a construction supply company. So I was sort of around the industry. The company I worked for during the summer supplied nails and rebar and joist hangers to builders. Mm-hmm. And then I also had the opportunity the last couple of years at Berkeley to manage a couple of apartment buildings in Oakland for an investor family friend. So sort of the, put it all together. And when I graduated, I really thought about a career in real estate. Uh-huh. And was that career in real estate just, let's go to banking and Wells is in the middle of that? Not so, necessarily. Okay. So I, I tried to step back and mm-hmm. think about my skill set. Right. And my skill set was a bit more analytical, uh-huh. and I felt that I could apply my skill set quickly in a financial institution. At that point in time, Wells had a particularly good training program that was attractive. They uh-huh. had a pretty good reputation in real estate, and they were local. Getting back to my roots in San Francisco, I didn't right. want to leave. So Rhodes pointed toward Wells Fargo uh-huh. in 1980. Was B of A here then? Were they kind of rival well, larger so, institutions? So, so the banking world in San Francisco, California in the 1980s, it was B of A headquartered here, Crocker Bank headquartered right. here, First Interstate, Security Pacific, and Wells Fargo. There were only two of those banks remaining. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty robust environment. The chemistry, the culture, the fit, and the real estate activity and acumen at Wells really pointed me there. Uh-huh. So you go right into Wells, and the goal is to do somehow play with real estate. The goal was to get in the financing side of commercial real estate. That was the number one goal. And did you have some people who I talk to who have careers like this, they go, I'm going to go do that because I'm going to get to know every developer, so then I'm going to go shift over uh, to of, that other side. Of, of course, and I'd be lying to you if I told you otherwise, that the goal was a two-year window of learn a craft, learn a trade, and then move to the, quote, private sector in the development world. For me, at various points in my career, which we can talk about right. as we do that sort of walk down memory lane. Right. You know, the opportunities that were in front of me, whether it was to manage a bigger set of relationships, whether it was to manage people, whether it was to manage a P&L, whether it was to build a portion of our business, mm-hmm. at various moments in time, all looked very attractive to me and would allow me to accomplish my goals, both professionally, personally, and financially, 
within the confines of one place without ever having to leave. Mm-hmm. No, and each time the next thing right, popped the, up. So let's think about it in terms of phases and in terms of either six-year or 10-year increments because the business changes and you grow and the company changes, right? And the real estate world, each of these change concurrently with each other right. and evolve over that period of time. Yeah. Let me just step back for a minute because yeah. the business evolved. So when I got into the banking business, I would tell you that decisions were made without a tremendous amount of rigor or information. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say decisions were made on the back of a napkin, but you had a fair bit of country club lending. It was very much relationship oriented. Obviously, it was pre-computers, pre-any technology. Mm -hmm. And I felt that my skill, which was to gather information and analyze information, I could put that to really good work. And I believed in the value of information. And I think that was a game changer for me to get away from back of the napkin, gut feel, to let's assemble information and make better decisions using so does that mean, because you're starting in around 1980, give or 1980. take? 1980. So you're starting in 1980. So did I. And interest rates are crazy. The world's crazy. But information's not king. That's So correct. as information becomes king, you're at the vanguard in the bank thinking, hey, I get the value of that. So that helps you in your upward mobility. So two things there, Matt. How do I gather the information? Because remember, it's not perfect. Mm-hmm. You have to find it. You got to gather it. And then you got to analyze it. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that would be a game changer for me personally to be at the forefront of that. So I worked really, really hard there in terms of making independent lending decisions based on information I would gather and making information at the center point of everything we do. You used two words in one sentence. You said information that I gathered to do my deal and then everything we do. So when did that information thing move from Mark's approach as a lender to the company's approach and then your leadership. Yeah, I would say the company always valued information, but not everybody at the company understood how to gather it. Not everybody understood how to analyze it. So to begin to think about standardizing how you gather, how you analyze, and then ultimately how you use that to surveil, Mm -hmm. use surveillance around the portfolio that you built and constructed. Mm-hmm. So very important. You know, today, obviously, very different. Right. We have technology that allows us to do all the above and do it all very efficiently. Mm-hmm. But that word surveillance is a CMBS word, and that's many years later. That, that is many years there later. Right. At that point. So you're still a kid. You're in the business. Still a you're a construction lender. It's here. Yeah. So kind of get us through to how that starts evolving into what those next steps are. Yeah. And the business will evolve too. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So I guess the way to think about that is... 1980s, the SNLs tended to be a very dominant lender in the commercial real estate space. Obviously, they went through their issues. And frankly, that then led to the advent of the RTC, if you can think about that uh-huh. moment in time. Uh-huh. So you had the SNL crisis, of which there were 7,000 SNLs that went broke. Right. The government walked in with the Resolution Trust Corporation. I worked at the RTC. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So they were able, as you know, package a lot of the troubled loans and new bonds. Mm -hmm. And so that became the early advent of the CMBS business. Again, with a pretty big calamity of failure, you also had, as a result, oversupply Uh in a number of product areas. So that's the sort of late 80s, Matt, early 90s. Uh 
So let's get to the early 90s. Yeah. So go through, you're a lender, everyone else is a lender, and then the SNL crisis happens. And what level role are you doing at the bank when the crisis happened? And then as we start to get out of the crisis, right. say with CMBS being right. born, where is Mark sitting? Yeah, so during the crisis, I'm sitting in actually Los Angeles. So I had moved to Los Angeles to run our Los Angeles real estate production office. Uh-huh. The crisis hits, all hands on deck in terms of resolving any problems that existed. Mm-hmm. Coming out of the crisis in 1993, 94, mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to move back to San Francisco and we formed a unit that we called at the time Real Estate Merchant Banking, mm-hmm. which was a unit that we built to largely buy distressed mortgage debt. Hi, this is Matt with an additional story from Mark that he told me after the recorded interview about this particular moment in his career. It was kind of a throwaway line from Mark while we were walking to the elevator after the interview, but sometimes the throwaway parentheticals are actually linchpins of one's story. So as Mark had just said in our interview, and you heard it from him, he moved to Southern California with the bank. What he left out of the conversation and came back to as we were walking down the hall is that while he was in Southern California, he was asked by the bank to take a meaningful promotion into a division outside of real estate. He considered it carefully. His mentors in the bank encouraged him to make the move, but it was a big risk since he had just bought, in his words, a house with too big a mortgage, had a young family, and it was outside of the real estate business, which was why he was in banking in the first place. It was also still the dark days of the SNL crisis, so no one knew where anything was going, and there was less opportunity within real estate. So with deep thought, he took the job. No surprise, a few months after taking the job, his boss and mentor in this new role left the bank, and then the bank cut out the division, and there was Mark, with that big mortgage and the young family. Oops! So he moved, still with the bank, but without his next role back home to San Francisco and kind of waited for what might be next. Said differently, he was open. Then the call came from the number two in the bank to see if he would be interested in being part of a small team to start up a Skunk Works merchant banking business to buy troubled real estate loans from other institutions. Remember, it was the SNL crisis, the RTC days and the RTC was starting to package up and securitize pools of troubled loans, and Wells saw this as an opportunity in that business. It was easy since he was between roles at the bank, so Mark said yes, and worked alongside in a small team with a guy named Don Cumular, and I think he said Tim Sloan, who went on to become actually the most recent CEO of Wells. They promised him a piece of the pie in terms of profits if there were any, but no one really expected it, and no one knew what would happen. Mark said that the vision was entrepreneurial and very unique to a big banking institution. Mark and his colleagues got their own coffee, ran their own numbers, and did the business hands-on. It was fun, a challenge, a team effort, and a rebirth for Mark. Ultimately, as that business gained traction and the longer-term opportunities became clear, some of Mark's colleagues, particularly Don Cumular, left to co-found PCCP, Pacific Coast Capital Partners. It was really from this crucible that Mark solidified and recast his leadership and career within the bank. His face lit up when he talked about the early days of that business. It was interesting that Mark had left that out of his recorded story. There's so often fulcrum moments in careers that bring together risk, close-knit colleagues, and a new way of thinking, and this was clearly that for Mark. Okay, now back to the conversation. 
we felt we had really good workout skill that we had developed in the late 80s, early 90s. Our portfolio was reasonably clean. We had some capital and we were prepared to take advantage of what we viewed as real opportunities. And the Mm -hmm. opportunities in front of us were to buy real estate debt. So that was a business we formed in 93, 94, and it was just a fantastic time. I mean, when you think about times in one career, particularly in real estate, Mm -hmm. it's really all about when the market is in a state of dislocation, you find unusual opportunities. It requires courage, Mm -hmm. for sure, Mm -hmm. because you never know how deep the hole is, but it requires courage, it requires capital. I would say we had more capital than courage. Mm -hmm. You're a bank. I'm a bank, (laughs) and generally risk averse, but we had plenty of capital and ultimately created some level of courage to go out and buy distressed debt. It's interesting to think about it because if you think of 93 to 97, that might be the period where all the opportunity funds, the major ones that still exist, got formed and go right. went and found that opportunity. That's correct. The banks, CMBS, all of that happened in that amazing period. That's correct. So interesting time, turbulent time, but a uh-huh. time of unique opportunity. Uh-huh. And so you're in and, the merchant bank? Yes, then? that's correct. And... Again, what was unique about Wells Fargo and what has remained unique about Wells Fargo is deep commitment to the real estate space. Always had a deep commitment Mm -hmm. and always had plenty of capital to commit to the space. Mm -hmm. So again, had both a level of courage and a level of capital. Fast forward the tape, June 1998, Wells Fargo and Norwest, Mm -hmm. a bank headquartered out of Minneapolis, decide to come together and form the new Wells Fargo with a combined asset base of about $190 billion. Prior to that bank merger, Wells, along the way, starting in, I think, 85, acquired Crocker Bank and First Interstate Bank, so two California banks. So you can see the consolidation in the industry really taking place. Mm-hmm. Can we keep going down the timeline? Yeah, keep going. It, great. It yeah. gets more interesting. So 98, Wells Fargo in Norwest, you know, we had gone through the SNL RTC crisis, markets starting to get healthy and rebuild themselves. And then the next big seminal moment was March 2000 mm-hmm. to October 2002, otherwise known as the dot com bubble. And the Russian ruble crisis and which the Russian ruble kind of crisis. Concurrent, maybe separate. Kind of concurrent. Concurrent. Yep. So you had online shopping companies at the time, we think of. Pets.com, Webvan, Boo.com, communication companies such as WorldCom, North Point Communications, and Global Crossings all failed or shut down. However, all is not lost because if you think about all the capital that went in to all of those businesses, it became really the backbone of the internet. Mm -hmm. And all that stuff, I think, allowed us to create real change. But there was a fair bit of speculative mania, and it was largely concentrated out here on the West Coast. Uh Some amount of dislocation in the real estate business, but not catastrophic. You then keep going down the timeline, and in 2007, Uh you get the global financial crisis. Yes. Let's pause there and go backwards, because now I want to think about, Mark, your evolution, the evolution of the Merchant Bank and CMBS and all the products that Wells has. And then where you sat within all of that, this yep. man who loves information. Yeah. And now management, and you're sticking with it because some of your colleagues wound up leaving during those periods of time. Yes. Yeah. So I, again, being, as I step back and said, A, 
I love the real estate finance business. I love the transactional side of the business. I want to be in an environment where I have capital, which is very important in the industry. You need capital. That I have a firm that's committed to the space. And there was never a point in time, Matt, where I ever questioned the commitment to the business at Wells, on top of which we had a wonderful set of clients. We had an opportunity to continue to grow the business, of which I was in the forefront of doing. I love the people I worked for and with. So there was never a point in time where I said, I need to get off the train. Mm -hmm. As long as the train continues to move, I want to stay on it. Mm -hmm. And I did have a variety of colleagues that left to do other things and built in their own right, successful companies. Mm -hmm. But again, for me, I always said to myself, as long as my train's moving forward, no need to get off. Right. And we'll pause just for one of those, because yeah. I think you had a group of colleagues at the Merchant Bank, maybe, who went and formed PCCP. They did. Yes. Very successful. Yeah, very successful. In fact, successful. one of our biggest clients today. Uh-huh. Very, very successful, based here in San Francisco. Okay. So they leave, you stay. You keep running and they, growing this business. They leave, I stay. Good opportunity for them, good opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. I continue to run the business, build the business, which at that moment in time was still the original genesis of our real estate merchant banking business, which if you think about that business, we got into it buying distressed debt and then migrated it to being more of an alternative lender. Uh -huh. You know, we did a number of things, mezzanine financing, mm -hmm. stretch senior mortgage. So we did a number of financings and had a business model that was somewhat unique for a commercial bank. Right. And if you come from that place, you're coming from underwriting, you're coming from data, you're coming from a conservative approach to knowing Absolutely. how to take risk. Absolutely. Alongside that, the bank's probably getting into CMBS and it's probably getting into GSE yes. lending, neither of which have the same level of risk, but have yes. a lot of production. Yes. And they're alongside you at that point in time, I'm thinking, but I may not be right about that. But yes. just any comments on how that keeps growing? Yeah, that keeps growing. Platform. But let me just, you mentioned risk. So we've always had the philosophy of not avoiding risk, but embracing it. Mm -hmm. uh, when you embrace it, though, you need to underwrite it, you need to manage it, and you need to price it. Mm -hmm. So never in my career did I ever think that risk in and of itself was a bad thing, and never in my career did I think willingly you would uh, avoid it. There are risks you clearly don't take. And by the way, you never do something that you don't understand. Never, never. Mm -hmm. but we are in the risk-taking business. We take right. risk every day, and we just work super hard to figure out how to underwrite it, embrace it, manage it, price it. And if we can do that well, it's a good recipe for success. It sounds kind of silly, but maybe a recipe for success in life. I walk out I the door in the morning, I'm taking some risk of walking so. across the street. Yeah, again, in an environment where generally we are more conservative, more cautious. I personally am more cautious, more conservative. Mm-hmm. Fair deal. So you do that. You're in the merchant bank. Alongside you, again, I'm guessing there's a GSE business. Actually, you own the company I used to work for. It used to be called right. Riley Mortgage. Right. And, right. But you do that, and then CMBS grows as a big percentage of this because a big part yes. of that servicing portfolio you mentioned early on. Yes. So we had run all those businesses independently for a number of years. So we ran our merchant bank, mm -hmm. our GSE our CMBS business, our balance sheet, traditional mm -hmm. balance sheet lending business, we ran those businesses all separate, all autonomous. And Eastill's in this somewhere, And Eastill's too. in the mix. They come into the fold. Where your kid works. So. Yes. So they come into the fold in the mid-90s. They, too, run very independent. It, by the way, it wasn't until very late in life that we 
even made the decision, which you would think we should have made sooner than later, to integrate all the businesses mm-hmm. into one so platform. So what did integrate them, and then what was your role in integrating? Maybe it was yeah. GFC made all that happen, but I yeah. don't know. We'll get there, <laughs> uh-huh. but I do want to just spend a minute on the global financial yes. crisis, which was you know really catastrophic. And two things that were unique for me at that moment in time. One, we made a very, as an institution, we made a large acquisition. December 31st, 2008, Wells got a handshake with Wachovia to acquire Wachovia, who was in trouble. Right. Not unlike some of the other financial institutions during that period of time. I think there were roughly 450 banks that were closed by the FDIC mm-hmm. during the financial crisis. You know, some famous ones, Washington Mutual, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Wachovia was also on the ropes. Wells makes the strategic decision to buy Wachovia, which turned out to be a fabulous transaction. But with the acquisition came a $50 billion troubled real estate loan portfolio. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to be asked to run that portfolio. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, you're a astute individual headhunter, uh-huh. uh, executive search extraordinaire. Thank you. I have a $50 billion loan portfolio I am responsible for managing. I need to hire a team. Mm-hmm. I hire individuals by definition, we will work ourselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. We will liquidate this portfolio, that's our charge. And at the end, we will work ourselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. So. It took a tremendous effort to build a team of ultimately 400 people Hmm. to manage that portfolio and to look everyone in the eye and say, we will be successful, but we will all by definition work ourselves out of a job. Mm -hmm. We've seen this in every cycle, right? It's a strange thing. It is strange. And my message is though no one will be left on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. that I will leave no one on the battlefield. I will help every one of you find an opportunity, whether it's internal with Wells Fargo or external. This will be a phenomenal experience. You will learn a lot. Mm-hmm. You will accomplish a lot. Mm-hmm. You will build and develop a wonderful set of skills, but you will lose your job at some point. Everyone knows that. So let me ask a few questions about that. They had a $50 billion troubled portfolio, same size as yours? About the same size. And what was your size of troubled portfolio at Wells? Uh, It was quite a bit smaller. Wachovia had slightly different strategy than Wells. Wachovia's strategy in the commercial real estate business was to largely be in the, what they would call moving business. Wells Fargo was in the storage business. The difference there is Wachovia would originate the loan with an intention to move it. Mm Mm-hmm and move it through a CMBS execution, move it through some other capital markets execution, heavily syndicate the loan, sell the loan. But their goal was to originate to distribute. Uh Our goal was to originate to hold. Which comes with a different set of attitudes towards risk. Completely, completely. And when the market freezes and it froze, your ability to move or sell is limited. Right. And I would think also it came with different attitude towards risk, but also different people and culture kind of organizations. So at the same time that you're taking over troubled debt and building a team to handle that debt, you're also bringing in the bankers from that organization who loved the moving business and you're in the holding business. So how does that integration work? You know, Matt, people self-selected. There was no misunderstanding in terms of 
the two approaches to the business and culturally how we approach the business. And people just ended up self-selecting. Mm-hmm. And to the extent they chose to be on the flat platform, they understood the conversion they would need to make mentally, professionally, personally. Mm-hmm. But again, it was all hands on deck because the deck was on fire. Right. And in a number of cases, people needed jobs. So, Right. So many things to unpack here. But one of the questions is, you started this with, we made a strategic acquisition there were like six major banks being sold and each one was going to get sold within a six month period. It was going to be demanded. Right. You may have done one of the better hands in that. I think a couple of those trades wound up almost sinking. That's correct. It took a long time to get through. That's correct. So I think there were two important pieces of the puzzle. One, it's how you valued the assets at the time of purchase. Mm -hmm. So you, had to be pretty spot on, although you couldn't be perfect. Falling knife hard to You value. never knew where values would go, <laughs> but you had to have done a fair bit of work at the front end to feel comfortable how you would value the portfolio. And then subsequent, you had to execute flawlessly in terms of your strategies around disposition right. of the troubled portfolio. So let's talk about troubled for a minute. Yeah. So you talked about the team. One of the questions that my wife worked at USFG was an insurance company at the end of the right. SNL crisis, and they had to go through the workout. Right. And I was at the RTC. We're all doing workouts. Right. And some institutions want to get it out the door right. and let the opportunity funds make money right. on getting out the door. Sure. And some institutions take a longer term, hey, we're going to create the value ourselves. Right. If that's yeah. a continuum, where in that continuum yeah. was your strategy? Yeah. I would tell you we were thoughtful about every position we owned and we tried to approach every position with what's the right disposition strategy mm-hmm. we realized we were not in the long term real estate ownership business mm-hmm. being a regulated institution you by definition can't be in the real estate ownership business we also realized time wasn't necessarily our friend and time wouldn't necessarily cure a problem so you had to be proactive you had to be a realist you also had to assess your counterparty, who was your borrower, how cooperative would they be? Mm-hmm. What was their own financial situation? What did the capital stack look like? Were you the loan provider or were there other pieces of capital in the stack? So it was a Rubik's cube and we would spend a lot of time thinking about what is our strategy to optimize the outcome. Mm-hmm. All the while knowing that you're right, the, the knife is falling and asset values are plummeting. And at the end of the day, asset values, on average, drop somewhere between 30 and 40%. Right. So even a well-margined loan came into... You swallowed a whale and you oh, priced the whale while it was yeah. falling, not when it was at the bottom yeah. of the ocean. Yeah. So super interesting, super yeah. interesting time. And unlike the previous down cycles in commercial real estate, which were largely supply-driven... If you Mm -hmm. think about the 80s and 90s, it was excess supply of whether it was office or retail or multifamily. This great financial crisis was an economic collapse. So you had tremendous number of job losses. And as you know, the commercial real estate business is driven by the economic climate. So goes the jobs, so goes real estate. And when Mm -hmm. you had 8 million jobs lost, it was catastrophic for the real estate industry. You know, a very tough time, learned a lot, Mm -hmm. learned an awful lot. You learned a lot about yourself. You learned a lot about borrowers. You learned a lot about your colleagues. Any one comment about what you learned about yourself? Then we're going to move on and talk about the rebirth of the industry yes. and, yeah. and what came next. But if you dig deep and you learned about yourself, you just said it. So what? Well, I think I developed a level of calmness 
uh-huh. that maybe I hadn't had before. Uh-huh. I was really forced to be calm at various points during that period, whether you're in front of a borrower, whether you're in front of colleagues, whether you're in front of the board mm-hmm. of Wells Fargo, who wanted to know on a pretty regular basis. How are talking we, about messy stuff. How, how are we doing? Yeah. So there was a level of calmness, I think. I'm also thinking that the mark at the merchant bank was analytic and doing deals. So you're both analytic and it's production, and now you're management and dealing with problems. That pulls upon different yeah. things from a person. Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. But wonderful time, yeah. great growth opportunity. And so out of that did yeah. come the bank knitting things together that so, had been separate? So the beauty of the two companies coming together is, despite the fact that we culturally approached the business slightly differently, moving versus storage, storage versus moving, mm-hmm. there was some geography difference which ended up being to our collective benefit to have a now broader geography with which to play, Wachovia being largely southeast dominated. Wachovia also had a, frankly, more robust capital markets business, Mm -hmm. a bit more active in the CMBS space. They had a repo business, which we have grown quite a bit. They were active in the affordable space. Uh, They also bought a GSE lender. Mm-hmm. Uh, which we were fortunate enough to inherit. So there were a lot of good things that came out of the Wachovia acquisition that helped build our commercial real estate business. So where does Mark fit into that story? Right. In terms so, of what's next after we're right. So we continue to make really good progress. Financial crisis starts to wrap up in the latter part of 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 2011, I was fortunate enough to be asked to run our commercial real estate business. Mm-hmm. It took us a couple years to bring everything together. We still ran the business separate. We had CMBS separate, mm-hmm. GSE separate, affordable separate, balance mm-hmm. sheet lending separate. So in 11, I was asked to run the balance sheet business. And then in 14, 15, we brought it all together under one roof. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, I made the promise to leave no one on the battlefield right. during the workout day. I was fortunate enough to bring a number of colleagues who had helped me during the workout day mm-hmm. back to building our business and platform and getting back more actively in the lending business and growing mm-hmm. and developing relationships and mm-hmm. helping our customers succeed financially. So That's great. And when it integrates back in, sometimes running five separate businesses – they kind of work well and more entrepreneurially. And sometimes when you force integration, you become bureaucratic or behemoth yeah, or something that's yeah. harder to be nimble. So talk about that. And I'll ask one other question about it. And maybe compare that to what it became versus what it might have become in the other very big banks too. Cause you're- yeah, not perfect. And we're not perfect. We're as critical as, as the next in terms of putting that together and making the platform execute at a super high level. Mm-hmm. What we really focused on, because frankly, Matt, some of the products are in conflict with one another. Mm-hmm. So we made sure that we offered our clients, although we weren't perfect, that we were agnostic as to what product they would choose, which is very important mm-hmm. because, again, the incentives are slightly different. Right. Some of the personal incentives are different. So it was very important that we said the customer has to be at the forefront of every decision we make. We had to present to the customer the array of products, Mm -hmm. give them a sense of how each product would price, Mm -hmm. 
give them the benefit and weakness of every product, but in the end, it was going to be their choice as opposed to force feeding them a product that we felt made the most sense for us. So that takes a while to get some of those natural conflicts out of the way. And you have conflicts with the person on the line. Absolutely one right. One person Ab- got some comp on one Ab- side, the Ab- other person's comp on the Ab- other side. Absolutely and, right. And let me add one other one to this. Yeah. It's just funny as a recruiter, I used to talk to people in the CMBS business, and they'd sit down the hall from a construction lending guy. Right. And the CMBS guy or gal would right. be pulling in $1.2 million a year. Right. And the construction lending guy or gal would right. be pulling in to right. 10. Right. And they're doing the same thing. So now right. you got two people pushing two products. Yeah, thank you for wow. that. So you had internal conflicts around comp. You yeah. had internal conflicts around, geez, my product. I want to sell before your product. Right. You know, at any client, there's limited shelf space. So you can't flood them with everything. You got to figure out what's the right product. Mm-hmm. So it's super complex. I think we've done a good job. Mm-hmm. We can do a better job. We have consciously focused on the team versus a set of individuals, Mm -hmm. but a challenge. Having said that, the platform benefits by virtue of having a deep and robust product set and the platform, going back to information, the platform benefits because you have this deep pool of information Mm -hmm. and you can use that information to your benefit to make better decisions at the front end or along the way. But in the end, what was important is we approached the business very much from a traditional commercial bank perspective, which is we're a lender first. And even though we're originating a CMBS loan for sale, we have to feel good that in the end, that's a loan we would make and be happy to own in our balance sheet. Mm -hmm. And how does it flow through with the advent of the non-bank banks being competitors and the having when you're in a bank dealing with the regulatory environment that gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed during that exact period of time, and I'm a loan producer, I might want to be at the non-bank bank because it's just easier, right. more fun, I'd probably make more money too. Right. So how do you deal with yeah. each of those overlays? Yeah, not easy and all hard. We originated last year, Matt, about $50 billion of financings. Mm-hmm. About 30 of that sits on our balance sheet. The balance gets distributed between GSEs, CMBS, mm-hmm. and the like. So there is no one in our space that does that level of volume, no one close. Mm-hmm. So we think the value proposition for people to be on our platform is they will be active in the business. You will do and see a lot of transactions. Mm-hmm. And a number of people appreciate that mm-hmm. versus being at Firm X, which has a more narrow focus. Doesn't have quite the product set, doesn't have the broad customer reach, doesn't have the big platform, doesn't have the big capital commitment. You you know, your day's a little bit more narrow in terms of the amount of activity you can do. Mm -hmm. We are clearly regulated, by the way, as is everybody in the industry, debt funds included. Mm -hmm. Their investors put them through the paces in terms of ensuring that they are really good risk managers, Mm -hmm. that they maintain a level of reputational risk. You have people watching you, but the investors are easier regulation. A little than bit, is. a little bit, but there's still a level of compliance required there. So I don't want to tell you we're not without our regulatory issues and it has become more pronounced uh-huh. today, but by virtue, again, of the amount of business we do, the customer base we have, the commitment we have to the space, it's a great platform. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. I I often think, and I've talked to clients about this, but particularly when you think of loan producers, again, back to that kind of person, 
and how much loan producers make. So I'm thinking about money, but it gets to the value of the platform versus the value of the producer. Right. And there's a tension between the two. Right. And I've always thought the platform is incredibly valuable and some of these people are make too much money right? <laughs> right? Yeah. because they think it's them, not the platform. Right. So that balance yeah. must shift all the time. Yeah, I think so. And everybody, look, everybody, again, back to information, everybody has generally perfect information. These days, uh, right? They, these days, they, they know what the market will bear, who will pay what. Right. I think people generally make pretty good choices. Mm-hmm. We also have the ability to, because of our size and scope, to give people enhanced opportunity. Mm-hmm. And whether that's to lead and manage and develop and inspire people, right. whether that's to lead and manage a business, there are many things we can do for people beyond just the monetary component that, mm-hmm. you know, we think, and you would know better than I, mm-hmm. get people excited to have some other opportunities. So that's all part of our value proposition, I think. Mm-hmm. So you're also leading this through the time that there was crisis of confidence in Wells. So yes. there were some scandals, if I could use the right word. Yes. Not in your side of the business. Yes. But you have to hear about it. Yes. And you've been with Wells for 39 years. Yes. So some, and you're close to leadership. So some yes. of this must break your heart and you have to manage alongside this mess. Yes. So for 37 years yeah. of my career, I've heard nothing but Wells Fargo being largely one of the best managed yes. financial institutions in the world and taking great pride in that. You know, Will Rogers said, I think it was Will Rogers. I'm going to give Will Rogers the benefit of the quote, but he, he said it takes, it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation, but you can lose it in a minute. Yeah. So Wells Fargo, 160-year-old company, great reputation, wonderful reputation. Yeah. 2016 sales scandal hits. You know, Matt, what was unique about the sales scandal is it was well understood. People understood what sales scandal meant, what it meant to open an account where you didn't give me authorization to open that account. So my 93-year-old mother, Mm -hmm. who reads the San Francisco Chronicle every day when the sales scandal hit and she read the article, she understood what that meant. She didn't understand what a LIBOR-fixing problem might be. She didn't understand what financial crimes is all about. She doesn't understand the London whale issue. But she understood Mm -hmm. that you mean to tell me that Wells Fargo opened accounts on behalf of people where they didn't give their consent, shame on you. So we have a long way to go to rebuild trust with our constituency. It's an ongoing journey. We will get there. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fundamental attributes of the company, the earnings power of the company, the strength of the businesses really haven't taken much of a hit, but reputation has taken a big hit in an environment where our value proposition to our customers is that we will be the best risk managers on the planet. Mm -hmm. We will guide and control and manage your information, your privacy, your dollars. And when that begins to come into question, it has a real impact. So Of course it does. And it never touched at a moment, I think, your world, the commercial real estate world, or even, I don't know, the residential mortgage world? Uh, It never touched directly our commercial real estate business. And our business was never impacted. Our team members greatly impacted, gravely impacted. 
you know, that's been an ongoing challenge for us. Mm-hmm. And for you, you're managing a major division of the company among colleagues who are very involved with this and that seeing right. them get mauled must hard. have been yeah, very really hard yeah, for very, you. Very hard. But we all work for one company. Mm-hmm. So was there never a point in time where you pointed a finger and said, you know, it's you, not me. Right. So. So. This is not a segue cause and effect, but you're about to retire. So I am about to retire. <laughs> Actually, Valentine's Day is my retirement date, a gift to my wife. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. On that yeah, selection of date. Yeah, thank you. And just so the listeners know, we're yes. here at January 9th at the moment. I'm, so. I'm on Countdown, Matt. How's Countdown? Uh, countdown's good. Uh-huh. Yeah, Countdown's good. I'm very actively working on a transition with a woman named Kara McShane, uh-huh. who's lovely, who one day, my replacement, who I hope one day you will have the opportunity to meet we'll do it. and do a podcast. She's super inspiring and super engaging based out of New York. So Kara and I are spending, have been spending the last couple months together and we will spend the balance of my time together, mm-hmm. but anxiously looking forward to that next. So know, I want to talk about the next yeah, thing, but let's yeah. look back for just a minute on real estate. Yeah. What do you see for the industry in the next 10 years, particularly on the finance side of the industry? Do you see big innovations and changes or are all the tools in place right now that might be stable for the oncoming? Yeah, I think, I mean, the as I mentioned earlier, Matt, I think the industry, the debt business is, is in as good a shape as I've ever seen. It's reasonably well-disciplined. It generally is firing all cylinders. Many different players in the space you do worry a little bit about discipline. That mm-hmm. Some people may choose to lose their way. That hasn't happened yet, thankfully. Mm-hmm. I think the issues facing the industry are a couple of things. One, how does the industry deal with if and when winter comes? Mm-hmm. I think the other challenges for the industry are uh, diversity and inclusion, a big issue. Mm-hmm. Gender, ethnic, the industry has not solved that. They've got a long way to go. We're solving it to some extent by putting our new right. leader in who's a female. I do think that diversity of thought is very important if you're going to make good and better decisions. The industry needs to solve for that broad topic of diversity and inclusion. So I'd put that at high on the list. There'll be continued technology changes and in innovation the information flow will be quicker. Mm-hmm. They'll be more at your fingertip. I think the basic framework for making decisions probably doesn't change. Mm-hmm. It does feel like the big will get bigger. We talked about ecosystem yeah. at the beginning of the conversation, yeah. and debt plays a role in the ecosystem of commercial right. real estate along with the equity side right. and the owner-operator side. Right. Any sense if I take a pie and call the pie the real estate yeah. ecosystem and put debt or the banks, yeah. financial institutions in a yeah. quarter of that ecosystem. Yeah. How do the relationships between them feel yeah. always being dependent upon each other? Let me yeah. take a slice. So of the debt space, which in the totality of capital in the real estate business would be, call it 65%, uh-huh. right? More or less. The commercial bank market has tended to be about half of that debt uh-huh. market. About half the debt market is the commercial banks. Uh-huh. Um And I think there's pretty good harmony today, really good harmony. The business has become way more institutional than it has, way more. The traditional real estate borrower back in the 1980s is largely a thing of the past. That traditional borrower was a 
entrepreneur mm-hmm. who generally raised capital privately, friends mm-hmm. and family. Uh, there was no real form of institutional capital other than the insurance companies. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, along came the private equity players coming out of the SNL crisis. And along came the REITs at the same time. And along came the REITs. Right. And all of a sudden, the business became very institutional, dominated by very big players. And that entrepreneur who built a business using his or her capital, friends and family, is changed. Mm-hmm. And they become now more of a sponsor mm-hmm. with a small segment of the capital, mm-hmm. leveraging big institutional capital, either in a fund format or mm-hmm. a deal one-off format. Mm-hmm. So it's changed. It's changed quite a bit. And my guess is the comment there becomes, it will forever have been changed. That's not going to go back. I don't think so. The stakes are much higher. Mm-hmm. The cost of entry is much higher. Uh The infrastructure you need to succeed is much greater. Uh I don't think it goes back. There's still a role for the entrepreneur, Uh for sure. The business is really all about the entrepreneur. But he or she will leverage his and her ideas to raise capital. Institutional capital. And no question. back to the comment I asked you before, which is I asked, what's regulation mean? And you said everyone's regulated because right. investors are a form right. of regulation. Right. Everyone's watching. Everyone's watching. And I think that everyone's being watched. And yeah, I think the level of vigilance is raised. So the institutionalization of the business is really picked up, mm-hmm. which I you know, frankly think is a good thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's going away from cutting the deal with the bar or the country club. Right. Maybe there's still a little bit of that, but not as much. Yeah, not as much. So how do you approach retirement? Yeah, great question, Matt. So I don't think about retirement. I think uh-huh. about opportunities and challenges. Good. My day will be different. And I've really bracketed, and I love your thoughts here, but I bracket into three buckets. Uh-huh. So bucket one will be friends, family, travel, and personal time. That'll be bucket one. Bucket two will be- Hopefully increased from before. Increased from before. I haven't set yet. I've set my buckets, but I haven't set the allocation. So bucket one, friends, family, Uh personal time, travel. Bucket two, I still think I got a lot to give in the industry. I got a lot of knowledge. I got great relationships. I'd love to figure out how to leverage that to do some level of advisory or board work. I also want to invest in the space in a Uh bigger, deeper way. That'll be bucket two. Uh And bucket three will be nonprofit world. I'd love to continue some of my work in the nonprofit world. I do have an affinity for the affordable space, so I'd love to find an opportunity there. Those are the three buckets. How I knit them together, a third, a third, a third, 25, 25, 75, I don't know. Uh-huh. That'll be the exploration and the journey. Uh-huh. And I assume the buckets you know, will change over time. I'm anxiously looking forward to... Uh, it's a wonderful way to think of it and look at it. And also to, with the caveat that you don't know the balance between those thirds, yeah. but they better kind of somehow approximate each I, other. I think so. Best. I think of, you know, we're roughly the same age. So I, I think of retirement, I use the word booby price, because if I did it, it was like, what would I do? How yeah, would I take right. Because I'm at the top of my yeah. game of knowledge and yeah. I'd say wisdom about this thing. Yes, right. And to walk away from that yeah. and just travel and family, yeah. that's not enough. Not I'm enough. too hungry. Not <laughs> enough, right? Yeah, not enough. By the way, I am. I do want to put a plug in for one thing I'm gonna, committed to do in my post-retirement. So I'm going to co-chair the ULI San Francisco October 12th to October 15th, 2020, ULI coming to San Francisco in the fall. Thank you. 
So Kristen Gannon, if you know Kristen, uh-huh. who's uh, and he's still secured managing director, and I are going to co-chair uh, ULI twenty twenty October San Francisco. Okay. So everyone come. Everyone come. By the way, if you've got a checkbook, you want to write a few dollars to help subsidize the event. That'd be great. So my last question on leading voices is always the same, which is advice for a young person getting into the real estate business. Yeah, I mean, a lot of advice, but let me break it down. I think, Matt, if you were a young person getting into the business, what I would tell you is your responsibility is to maximize your skills, Mm -hmm. the skills you were given. So whatever you decide to do, invest everything you have in it. Sam Zell... Mm-hmm. He's been on the podcast. Okay. Yeah, he's a great guest. Okay. So I think it was either Sam Zell or Confucius. That they were related. They were related. That once said, the definition of a schmuck is someone who's reached his goals. <laughs> so I think it's a wonderful industry built with fantastic relationships. It requires forever learning. I would tell you it requires a high level of empathy, mm-hmm. a high level of commitment, a high level of energy, all the things that you personally can control. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be some disappointment along the way, no question, and you would know as well as I that no one's career is linear. There'll be ups and downs. It's, you know, how resilient are you mm-hmm. when the environment slightly goes against you? But uh, fabulous, fabulous industry. Mm-hmm. From the guy who started the conversation talking about analytics and information, you're ending the conversation talking about one of the keys to success or the key to a satisfying career might be empathy and relationships. And I think real estate benefits from having that balance of there's a technical aspect to this thing, but it is a smallish group that you'll keep bumping into and empathy a wonderful word to help make the success in it. Yeah, empathy, you know, passion, curiosity, all of that. It's a team sport, super team sport, goes back to relationship building, but really fabulous industry, not without its challenges. You've seen them. Not without its challenges. (laughs) Going through them. Uh, Not without its challenges. This has been fun. This has been great. This has really been fun. I really appreciate you having me. You're welcome. And I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.